If you study these two settlements in any kind of depth, you will find some interesting observations. Plymouth centered around covenanting with God and with one another. While they were not perfect by any means, over and over the pilgrims seemed to encounter divine providence at just the right times. Jamestown, on the other hand, centered primarily on the acquisition of gold and the building of capital. While there were some redemptive elements in the colony, the settlers seemed to encounter much fighting and bickering and failure. Many people came to America. Many came seeking wealth. Many came seeking religious freedom. When studying the founding of the United States, one thing that you can't help but encounter is the faith of our forefathers. Time and time again, our forefathers recognized God's hand in the shaping of this nation. You will find him mentioned repeatedly in the words and documents. Amazingly, hardly any of this factual history is taught today, whereas it was common public school teaching material 75 years ago. It is important to note, though, that while our forefathers were great men who did great things, they were also just men, fallible and imperfect. When we decided to embark upon creating this book, we decided to use King David from the Bible as our model. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a murderer and adulterer. And though David repented of his errors, they haunted him for the rest of his life. In the same way, our forefathers left some things undone, and along the way our nation plunged into some dark traditions. Ours is a heritage of light and ours is a heritage of darkness. This book is a collection of short stories about our heritage. Each short story could have, and has had, entire books written about its subject. Our collection of stories is by no means exhaustive. We have left out many great ones. But it is our hope that these accounts will ignite a passion and inspire you to learn more about the great heritage you have and to seek out the unfinished work left to do. It is our hope that you enjoy reading these stories as much as we did discovering them. Toby and Michael. Chapter 1. Bulletproof. The French and Indian War. Account of a British officer. The American Indian chief looked scornfully at the soldiers on the field before him. How foolish it was to fight as they did, forming their perfect battle lines out in the open, standing shoulder to shoulder in their bright red uniforms. The British soldiers, trained for European warfare, did not break rank, even when braves fired at them from under the safe cover of the forest. The slaughter at the Monongahela River continued for two hours. By then, 1,000 of the 1,459 British soldiers were killed or wounded while only 30 of the French and Indian warriors firing at them were injured. Not only were the soldiers foolish, but their officers were just as bad, riding on horseback, fully exposed above the men on the ground. They made perfect targets. One by one, the chief's marksmen shot the mounted officers until only one remained. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies, the chief commanded. The warriors, a mix of Ottawa, Haran, and Chippewa tribesmen leveled their rifles at the last officer on horseback. Round after round was aimed at this one man. Twice the officer's horse was shot out from under him. Twice he grabbed a horse that had been left idle when a fellow officer had been shot down. 
10, 12, 13 rounds were fired by the sharpshooters. Still, the officer remained unhurt. The native warriors stared at him in disbelief. Their rifles seldom missed their mark. The chief suddenly realized that a mighty power must be shielding this man. Stop firing, he commanded. This one is under the special protection of the Great Spirit. A brave standing nearby added, I had seventeen clear shots at him, and after all could not bring him to the ground, this man was not born to be killed by a bullet. As the firing slowed, the lieutenant colonel gathered the remaining troops and led the retreat to safety. That evening, as the last of the wounded were being cared for, the officer noticed an odd tear in his coat. It was a bullet hole. He rolled up his sleeve and looked at his arm directly under the hole. There was no mark on his skin. Amazed, he took off his coat and found three more holes where bullets had passed through his coat but stopped before they reached his body. Nine days after the battle, having heard a rumor of his own death, the young lieutenant colonel wrote his brother to confirm that he was still very much alive. As I have heard since my arrival at this place, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and of assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. The battle on the Monongahela, part of the French and Indian War, was fought on July 9, 1755, near Fort de Quesnay, now the city of Pittsburgh. The 23-year-old officer went on to become the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army and the first president of the United States. In all the years that followed his long career, this man, George Washington, was never once wounded in battle. Fifteen years later, in 1770, George Washington returned to the same Pennsylvania woods. A respected Indian chief, having heard that Washington was in the area, traveled a long way to meet with him. He sat down with Washington, and face to face, over a council fire, the chief told Washington the following. I am a chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far Blue Mountains. I have traveled a long way and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief. I called to my young men and said, Mark yon tall and daring warrior. He is not of the Redcoat tribe. He hath an Indian's wisdom, and his warriors fight as we do, himself alone exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which, but for you, knew not how to miss. T'was all in vain, a power mightier far than we shielded you. Seeing you were under the special guardianship of the great spirit, we immediately ceased to fire at you. I am old and shall soon be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of the shades. But ere I go, there is something bids me speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen, the great spirit protects that man, pointing at Washington, and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, 
and the people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. I am come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle. This story of God's divine protection and of Washington's open gratitude could be found in many school textbooks until the 1930s. Now few Americans have read it. Washington often recalled this dramatic event that helped him shape his character and confirm God's call on his life. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Psalm 91, 7 Worship in the Capitol Thanks to the constitutional mandate of Article 1, Section 5, Paragraph 3, Every debate and every vote that has taken place in Congress from 1774 to the present is recorded in the public records. As a result of this mandate, the American people are able to read exactly what happened when Congress first moved into the Capitol. On December 4, 1800, just a few weeks after moving into the building, Congress decided that the Capitol would also serve as a church building. This fact is not only recorded in the annals of Congress, but also confirmed in the journals of various representatives and senators serving during the time. For example, Senator John Quincy Adams recorded on October 30, 1803, attended public service at the Capitol, where Mr. Rattoon, an Episcopalian clergyman from Baltimore, preached a sermon. Just a week earlier, he'd written, Religious service is usually performed on Sundays at the Treasury Office and at the Capitol. I went both forenoon and afternoon to the Treasury.